The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. To the denizens of Wall Street, Barry Cohen, the protagonist in Gary Steingart's latest novel, Late Success, will be a familiar type. He's sort of an amalgam or Frankenstein creature, if you will. Equal parts Paul Singer, Dan Loeb, Cliff Asnes, and Howard Marks, all big investors. He's a rich guy, of course, but he's flawed in so many ways. And money only partly buys him happiness. Gary swung by Times Square to explain how he came up with Barry's story, what sort of research he did, and what he learned about Wall Street and the money business. Gary also gives us a glimpse into the next book he's working on, Hint, It's a dystopia that deals with social media, Russia, and politics. Can't wait to read that one. In any event, listen to my chat with Gary Steingart. Gary, thanks for coming by. Sure. Um, You know, I was thinking uh, after having read Lake Success uh, and having read some of your other books, I was really excited about this one because it dealt with finance, Mm -hmm. which is something that I'm very interested in, our our audience is interested in. I mean, how did you... Get on top of the lives of these sort of a Wall Streeter like Barry Cohn in Lake Success. Well, I have a friend who's a financial journalist um, currently at Barron's, and she sort of knows everyone. And I, um, as I was starting to, re- as I was thinking of writing this book, I said, "Hey, can you introduce me to some some folks?" And boy, did she ever! You know, and I was meeting some people outside of her, but everyone I met, or a lot of people I met, had actually read some of my work, you know, although some of them had grossly misinterpreted, you know, what I'd written, but that was cool. You know, I mean, everyone can have their own kind of interpretation. Sure. I even heard that there were some tax cheats on the Virgin Islands who were reading it as a book club selection, you know. Uh, this is a super sad true love story, right. a, a dystopian novel. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I kind of fell in with them pretty quickly. I, I, you know, the sample space I inhabited, there were too many people, I think, that were very into literature, which I don't think is you know, that true of, of finance as a whole. Not totally common, but not totally common. Uh, but the ones that I became sort of friendly with, many of them were, were good readers and, and were, and many of them were quite intellectual. Uh, it didn't sort of do the standard kind of, you know, Wharton MBA route, not that those people can't be smart, but, you know, but they were, many of them were PhDs in math or physics or whatever. And so they were, um, you know, I felt like I could talk to them without this sort of, you know, gloss of just, the, the sure. Wall Street kind of lifestyle. And what, so you were interested in understanding what makes them tick, what, you know, what, how they work, but also you seem to also do a pretty good job of understanding their lifestyles. I mean, how much of it was sort of a bit of that of profiling the lifestyle as, as much as the sort of the habit of work that they're... Well, you know, the, the question quickly became sort of what, what do you strive for? What do you want for yourself? What do you want for your kids? Um, because theoretically there's enough dynastic wealth to keep them, you know, in... in in condos for the rest of their lives, not mm. just them, but their children as well. So what, what becomes a kind of motivation? And that was a question that was very difficult to answer. Um, not to get pedantic, but studies do show that after a certain amount of income and assets, nothing really, there's no more happiness that accrues to you. And that was definitely the feeling I had was, you know, that, that many of people were very disconnected from what they did. I remember at one point, uh, you know, a very smart hedge fund manager was trying to tell his son, who's like 12 years old, what a hedge fund was, and there was no way that he could explain it. You know, well, we and then uh, you know, two and twenty, I think two and twenty is the only thing you really need to know. Uh, and that you know, and, and I think when you do something like that, where you can't just come up to a, an average person and explain what you do, I think in some ways it takes a kind of psychic toll. I mean, you live in a world that's all abstraction. You know, you don't contribute in any way to anything. 
and, and that's kind of dispiriting. And I think the one reason they wanted to, many people wanted to talk to me, my God, I mean, you know, they just wanted to go out all the time and we stayed up till five in the morning drinking <laughs> ourselves stupid, you know. And, and I think one reason they wanted to do that is because they wanted somebody who was outside of the industry because most of their friends were inside the industry. Um, they wanted somebody to talk to who they could sort of explain, who they could sort of validate themselves as not just money makers or so money losers because many of them were losing. Right, of course. Uh, so Barry Cohen, who's the protagonist in the book, is he... I, I mean, what, is it fair to call him a bit of a composite of some of the people you met, or is it? Or I mean, how did how did you come up with like what were the pieces that went into creating Barry Cohen? Yeah, you know, I mean, it was, it was a bunch of stuff. Um, so Barry is not what you would call a quant, uh, but he has he he grew up kind of a nerd, but he forced himself to be very social. He calls himself the friendliest guy in the street, uh, and many of the non-quants I met were. You know, you could sort of tell that they were winging it in some ways, mm -hmm. and they were doing it solely by dint of their social contacts, um, and the fact that they were, you know, handsome, athletic, backslapping kind of guys, uh, and and that counted for a lot in their world. And not to say they were stupid; they were mm -hmm. they were smarter than average, obviously. Um, but but that that had helped quite a bit. Um, so when I was thinking of, of Barry, I was thinking of a bunch of people, including some of the more melancholy people I've met, the ones that were sort of wondering, what the hell am I doing, you know? Right. I got all this money, and what am I producing for society? What am I producing for society? But also, you know, how do I relate to my wife, who doesn't work, and I don't know what she does, and she's just basically raising the kids, even though she's more qualified than I am, because she has a law or medical degree or whatever, you know? Which, of course, was the, the protagonist, wife, Barry Cohn's wife. Yeah, his book. wife, Seema, who is way Former smarter lawyer. than she is. A, a, yes, she graduated from Yale Law. <clears throat> Her prospects were quite quite bright and then she married somebody and you keep hearing this in these sort of couples where the you know the wife says well given the mar marginal tax rates does it really make sense for me to work you know and and then sort of sacrificing her own right. ambitions on the altar of the family unit so she sort of becomes the curator of the family's affairs um and so there was some of that i also taught at princeton for just a little bit back in the day um i mostly teach at, at columbia now mm -hmm. um but I was really, I mean, there were some very impressive people, and, uh, impressive kids taking creative writing in the undergraduate level. Um, but you could tell that many of them were, you know, Goldman Sachs bound in the end. And I think I got the kind of sense from them that they were, you know, that they knew this was going to be their path, even though they had this creative spark in them. Uh, and when I thought of Barry, and that's, Barry also went to Princeton, also was a kind of creative writing minor, I believe, if not major. And, you know, he also had this creative spark in him. Right, he was this sort of unrequited ambition of becoming, a, you know, a writer. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that permeates his whole, you know, and when he, he kind of leaves, goes yeah. to Port Authority, gets on the Greyhound bus yeah. to try to find himself. Yeah. Keeps thinking he might do that. You also did that, didn't you, in your yeah. research? Because I, I say that you sort of seems, you seem to have written in New York, Baltimore, Richmond, Atlanta, Jackson, El Paso, Juarez, Phoenix, La Jolla, New York. So did you? <laughs> yeah, I did how, it. I did the whole thing. I, um, so it took about four months, but with huge stops along the way um, in all of these different cities that you just mentioned. It was very instructive. I mean, it's, um, you know, I hate the stuff about quote unquote real America, even though that's what Barry sets out to find on, uh, on the hound. And he does so, by the way, because he's fleeing an SEC investigation. So there's a bit of an impetus there. Sort of insider trading. Insider thing, trading. Which would seem to be very, I wouldn't want to say loosely, quite quite close to the, the, the Valiant uh, yeah. scandal. Yeah, because, you know, Valiant and all those other investments um, were 
really big in the hedge fund community. Everybody was betting the farm yeah. on that stuff. You know, one of the many ways in which people lost money. Yeah. Um, and um, but when I got on the Hound, you know, in New York, I had a very different conception of the country. And again, I, I, you know, New York is as real as any other part of America. We are all America. You know, San Francisco, whatever you have it. I mean, there's not this. I don't want to, you know, sort of sanctify rural America as the only real America because I think that leads to trouble. But you do see a very different side, even as as, as you cross the Hudson. You know, it's as immediate as that. You see some very, the kind of hope and excitement that you feel around the the sort of million plus metros like New mm. York or certainly New York and, but but others as well, Chicago. You know, whatever. All of that kind of dies out very quickly, and there's a sense of a very different country. Well, I mean, that is the one of our problems with you know the bubbles that we uh, live inside of, whether it's media or literary sure. or the, that kind of thing, and finance. Sure. Um, and you do a great job of kind of explaining. He's in this finance bubble. Your 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 uh, your character. Um, what does he learn, and what and how different was it from what you kind of learned? Well, I mean, look, I mean, I'm not I'm not a billionaire, but but even for me, it was it was it was a whole different experience. You know, you get on the hound. As we called it, the hound yeah, or the dog, the hound. Uh, yeah, the and, dog. and um, you know, it's a it's a sort of very regimented experience. I mean, I'm not saying flying is fun, but here is basically like a kind of drill instructor yelling at you, saying, you know, don't do this, no alcohol, no no sardines or tuna, which is a blessing, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, on some buses, when people started cursing loudly, he'd yell language. Um, and then sort of telling people, one of the first scenes is, you know, Barry gets on the bus, much as I got on the bus, and there was this woman who was clearly quite disabled, and she wanted to sit up front, because the one thing you don't want to do on the Greyhound is sit at the back of the bus where the toilet is. Um, and he was yelling at her, he's like, how are you disabled? How are you disabled? Oh and her English wasn't so great, and so she was trying to explain it, and I was like, oh my God, I've entered this whole different universe, you know, where, I mean, yeah, you know, Southwest, you know, Airline personnel are not necessarily the friendliest, but you know this would never happen on any mode of transportation no. other than the Greyhound. Well, I mean, you enter you immediately a totally different socioeconomic uh, yeah. level when you're on on the thing, and I imagine you see, uh, you know, it's probably more diverse. Well, it is diverse, and it, it, the diversity sort of changes as you go along. So, you know, for stretches, it can be African American, Jamaican. Uh, then it can be rural white, then it can be, you know, Latina, Mexican for, for large portions of it in the Southwest. So, yeah, it, it's a really great barometer of like what, what, the, what the whole country looks you, like. Well, in, this, in this journey of yours, and so again, reflecting a little bit back on Barry Cohn's um, journey, I mean, who were the happiest people you met? Um, and, and, and how, what did it sort of, did it make you question this whole idea of ambition, success and wealth? acquisition that that drove your character you know a lot of the people I met in the hedge fund world were themselves products of lower to lower middle class families and and all over the world it could be you know Italy or Russia or wherever you know and they were just they grew up with a bit of a chip on their shoulder which is something I understand too we we came we were not wealthy we kind of lived in the outskirts of Queens and then I went to Stuyvesant High School which was this big magnet for sort of you know, bright nerds, mm-hmm. multicultural nerds, multi-ethnic nerds from everywhere. Uh, and, and that was um, that was an eye-opener. You know, it was uh, our ambition. And in fact, many of the people I met were graduates of Stuyvesant. But on the bus itself, I would say that the, the most sort of happiest people I met were people, when you get off the bus, people who worked at a certain community. So professors, I mentioned them a couple of times. You know, a, a big part of the book is set in El Paso, where I hung out for a while at the University of Texas at El Paso. Okay. Uh, and those those people were really happy in the sense that... This is where Barry finds his former yeah, girlfriend he's, he's from, Princeton, looking, yeah, from Princeton. Right. And she's a professor there. And, you know, and these folks really, you know, it was the very opposite of running a hedge fund. It was in the sense that you actually got to help somebody out. You know, many of the people at 
kids at UTEP were first-generation college students. And that was the biggest thing. And also first-generation college students on the Hound itself who were sort of traveling for a while because they were getting a cheaper education in some, yeah. you know, other, some state university, leaving their, their folks. You know, they seemed full of hope, too. So it was this sort of, you know, when, you, when you're entry-level, when you're an immigrant or you're the first person in your... You know, it's, it's this dream of upward mobility, you know. Yeah. Some of America's most exciting times seem to be centered around the GI Bill. You know, people talk about that with such nostalgia and hope because all of a sudden this whole generation of working class people got their first stab at education. education, higher education. Yeah. I mean, are you more hopeful about like America as a result of, of riding the hound or, or I mean, is it just you understand the reality better? One of the scenes in the book, uh, which is also incredibly true to life, is a scene where Barry is in Louisiana, I believe, and he, and these white supremacists get on the bus. And this actually happened to me as well. And they were talking very loudly about crucifying Muslims and Jews, you know, in a, one of those categories. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then we drove, and Barry gets off the bus and buys a New Testament coloring book. You know, That's to right. Sort of try to prove that he's not, not as Jewish or Muslim <laughs> as they think he is, even though his last name is Cohen. And he, um, and I, I, the very same notebook, there, it was for sale in, in a Shreveport Greyhound Depot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then this other part of that scene <laughs> Did is, you, you buy know, it? I didn't buy it, but mm-hmm. I, I thought about it quite a bit. Um, there was, um, you, you know, we passed through Grambling State University, which is a historically African-American college, and, and they were talking very loudly about, well, they got their colleges, meaning African-Americans, and we got our colleges. One day we'll have our colleges, which is, so, I was like, right. we're part of Dartmouth, but you get, right? I mean, <laughs> our colleges, you know. Um, and, and, and the scariest thing of that, Part of the trip was that even though predominantly it was you know people of color on the bus at that point in the trip, um, we all kind of looked away. Um, nobody challenged these people, mm. and that felt like a very 2016 moment. The first moment, not that these races didn't exist before, but it was the first moment where they can just let it all loose and talk about Breitbart and whatever they were talking. So about. they were they feel permission to, to be able to speak that way in ways that were you know have we've spent many generations trying. Yeah, not to. yeah, trying to you know I mean. It was a different kind of America in the sense that obviously all this stuff has always existed, but this was the first summer where you could open up your mouth and let it all come out right. and, and without any consequence. Well, you 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 are an immigrant yourself. I mean, sure. you were born in, I guess, probably the former Soviet yep, Union, Leningrad, right? Yeah. And uh, so, how did how does how does that help you to as a novelist, just generally, to observe the you know, sort of American culture? And I mean, I think it's always great to be sort of a step away from the very mainstream. I mean, I think that's why so many of our greatest writers have not been, you know, sort of the traditional white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male, you know, um, to look at it from any kind of perspective where, because this country is very diverse, and yet I think there's a kind of conformity at its core, kind of almost militaristic conformity Mm. that, you know, um, and the current political environment, I think, is a kind of backlash from, you know, from a much different vision of what this country was for sure. a while. So, you know, it was um, it was interesting to see to, to see it from the point of view of somebody who's, who's, who's um, who has obviously was, is born in a different country. But, you know, lately I've becoming I feel I'm becoming more and more Americanized, and the, the, the major difference is that I learned how to drive a couple of years ago, oh, yeah. and I re- <laughs> and I realized just how much of America is about sort of. I spent half the year in upstate New York and just driving to a mall and picking up a giant case of Charmin tissues. <laughs> you know, I think without doing that, it's 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 you're missing out on, on some part of this experience. No, that's absolutely true. Do you, 
I mean, w- one of the things about you, the character in Lake Success, Barry Cohen, is I, I found him quite sympathetic. Okay, I mean, there were like he's flawed yeah. beyond belief, yeah. um, and I don't mean just that he's on the spectrum, which you you know is Could sort be. of autistic yeah. or something, um, but just he's his character is yeah. is is some is is flawed, um, and he makes some bad decisions. But in the end, I sort of felt I didn't mm-hmm. feel like um, he was an antagonistic. I did, I felt some sympathy for him, which is kind of interesting given that you know since the financial crisis. Nobody has sympathy for yeah. the financial elite. Yeah. I mean, did you take any grief from, you know, your colleagues and critics on that? Uh, I think I have some, not, not as much as you know as I expected. Honestly, do you expect uh, more? I did expect some more. Um, and my point is not that you know. I, I mean, the book I think takes quite a stance about what finance has done to this country. Mm. And, and toward the end of the book, um, Barry's wife Seema says, you know, after the election of 2016, she said, you know, without people like you doing the kind of things that you've done, this would never have happened. So referring to the election, referring of to the election Trump. of Donald yeah. Trump, you know, um, and, and you do get the sense that you know. If Trump is a charlatan in, in the way he presents himself politically, but also in the way he presents his investments and all the other stuff that he's done, then, then the hedge fund world is also not entirely dissimilar. You mm. know? Because uh, one thing that was constant throughout my research was that I would meet people who had, quote unquote, blown up, you know, lost gazillions of dollars for their clients, and yet were none the worse for the wear. Mm-hmm. You know, um, well, opening fund number two. Or, I mean, Barry exactly. does it as well. Barry does it as well. The more he blows up, the people say, well, now he's really learned his lesson. So let's give him some more money. Hey, you know, he went to Princeton. He's he's athletic. You know, he looks good. <laughs> um, how, what can go wrong, right? Um, and that kind of weird sense of, you know, people constantly, you, you know, there's a great book called uh, Where Are the Customer's Yachts? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? so Fred Schwed or whoever I it was. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a classic it's a classic. It's a classic book on Wall Street. And, and the other is, of course, Reminiscence of a Stock Operator. Yeah, yeah. And that was an interesting book, too, because that kept coming up. Everyone kept saying, even though I'd read it when I started doing my research, but everyone kept saying, oh, you got to read Reminiscence of a Stock Operator. It's so awesome. And that guy is just, I learned so much from that guy. Um, well, the gentleman who wrote it or who was the basis of that novel, who was the main inspiration for the book, right. committed suicide uh, after, you know, right. uh, after some of his investments went south. And was, if you read the book, you know, between the lines, what's so interesting about that book is, so he keeps making money, but he's also completely miserable all of the time. Yeah. His whole dream is to one day escape to the Florida Keys to fish marlin in his, on his yacht. But as, as soon as the moment he gets gets down to Florida, you know something happens on, 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 uh, to the markets, and he rushes back up and forget. You know, so he never enjoys his life, and in the end, he takes yeah. his own life. And yet, he, you know, so many people are telling me this is the role model. That I'm Isn't that extraordinary? <laughs> I mean, so did you do a lot of? You must have done a fair bit. Of, what was your bibliography like for? It was it, it was a lot of stuff. I mean, it was you know it was definitely that book. Um, um, uh, Trying to think, uh, but it was also I, I didn't want to just I wanted to read critiques of the market as well. So I would, you know, I read Capital, Capital, for example, okay. um, which wasn't entirely about the markets, but an interesting idea. As in Karl Marx? No, no, Capital, the the oh, Piketty. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I shouldn't have said Capital. Sorry, which, yeah, 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 I mean, no, I read, like Marx. <laughs> I read Capital. I went to Oberlin, so okay. believe no, me, so I, they, yeah. I read Capital. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think, not Capital. I think quite, it's it's a required reading. It's required readings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it was you know, and of course Michael Lewis is a wonderful bard of of you know he's I think he should be everyone's interest. I make right. all our new employees read Liar's Post. Oh, absolutely. No, it, it, it kind of nails it. You know, there's, there's not much more you, can, you need to know after that. Uh, and, and it's so, you know, it holds it holds up so well, even though finance has in some ways changed quite a bit, but in other ways. No, you know, I think it's still, a, 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 it's sort of timeless. Um, 
Did you learn anything about investing or making money in this whole So at adventure? their drunkest moments, people would sometimes tell me things like, you know, don't invest in my funds. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You <laughs> well, you know, and, and the best advice I ever ha gave, uh, gotten from anyone, and, and, and in fact, advice I'd always followed myself, not that I have that much money to invest, mm -hmm. but, it's, you know, it's low-cost index funds. That's, be, that's that's your takeaway from spending that, all this that, time. That really is it. You know, if you're <laughs> if you're not that old and you're you got you know twenty, thirty, forty years of investing, unless the entire civilization collapses, you'll you'll probably a possibility. That's, that's true. You'll probably come out. Uh, you did also profile Mike Novogratz. I did. I did. Yeah. So I mean, that was separate. I mean, you did, and that was a fascinating yeah. profile because Mike was is one of those guys who's you know yeah. who's gone up to the moon and crashed a couple of times. Uh, with his, well, that's what I loved about him, and, and you know, and, and uh, so that came. I was. I had finished writing sort of the main draft of the book, and um, and I met David Remnick of the New Yorker, and he said, "Do you want to write about one of the more interesting people you've met along the way?" Usually, I, I write an article when I'm doing research, mm -hmm. and then that helps with the fiction. But in this case, I thought, well, you know, why not use this knowledge for something? And, and Mike was definitely the most, um, you know, the most interesting, flamboyant, and most importantly, the most open of all these people. You know, there's no gating. Right, you didn't and, have to and, sit and, with the PR people. No, and... no. Even on the record, he would just open up and blob, you know, just, just talk. He doesn't, he doesn't hold back, that's yeah, for sure. Makes Isn't he like a, for, he's a former, like, helicopter pilot or something yep, yeah, like that? he's a that. former helicopter pilot, so he's, he's a kind of a... But a he went crew. crazy with Bitcoin, so you must have, you, yeah. and I think you profiled <laughs> him as that was uh -huh. all happening. So, I mean, what did you learn about this sort of just the human nature of people following, you know, these these bubbles and things like that, or the, or were most of the, the the hedge fund guys you talked to mm -hmm. kind of, you know, pretty pretty clear not to were they were they were they even taking big risk? Well, so everyone thinks they're going to succeed for a certain reason, and and the sense I got from Novogratz was that he thought he was going to succeed because he could more ably communicate the excitement of what not just Bitcoin, but what cryptocurrency was going to do because he was a, a true believer. I, I mm. still is a true believer despite the uh, vicissitudes of the market. Right. He's uh, I remember he, we had him on this podcast and he was talking about opening a fund. Yeah. Bitcoin went from 18,000. I know a few months later, the fund did not materialize. But. It's down to 4,000, I think, if I'm not mistaken at this point. Anyway, but he was, as he kept saying in, in you know Wall Street speak, what's my value add? Uh, my value add is is that I can really communicate this stuff, and you know, if crypto really does happen, then 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 I could see them. You're beyond Bitcoin. I'm not sure, but but if if yeah. the model of, of crypto holds, I could see him being an effective advocate for it. But I wish him you know luck at this. You point. had you had a lot of that value. You used a fair amount of the Argo of Wall Street. Yes. There. And, and and it was funny. It was applied to things like family units. It's just not about not money. The Argo was really funny. I mean, I think all industries have some of that. Oh, yeah. But here it was very, very prevalent. And it seemed like, you know, going back to that argument that a lot of the people who are super smart are thinking, why am I doing this? What am I contributing? You know, it almost felt like some of that Argo was there to make them sound smarter than, or to make them feel better about what they were doing. Because when you strip the language away, there really wasn't. It was just somebody saying, "Hey, you know, I'm going to sink money into or short this." Yeah. yeah. You know, and 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 then what's what's to make them any different than you know sort of the random walk on Wall Street where everything kind of right evens out anyway. So, I, but I, it was all very very funny. But it was all new to you that some of that language, right? You don't hear that teaching creative writing at Columbia. So no, much. no, and, and I, you know, and that's one thing I really don't miss after the research is, is, <laughs> right. is hearing that day in and day out. You know. So um, what's your next project? What are you working on? Well, I'm starting to um, 
write the next book, but you know, uh, um, one thing I'm very interested in is um, sort of political technology, which is a term that's um, it's found its way out of out of Russia, uh, where political technologist is actually a term for somebody who it's a job that's a job title. It's a job title, and basically the job is creating misinformation. So it's very uh, so. I want to write about. I'm starting to write a little bit about um, kind of another dystopia after Super Sad True Love Story, and it's set in a rural America that's almost entirely that's hugely influenced by Russia. It's in a future where there's a kind of Pax Moscovia where. Oh, North America and, and, and Europe are both in huge decline compared to Asia and other parts of the world, but are kind of held together by this brand of misinformation coming out of Moscow. Oh, well, um, I, I, uh, partly I can't wait to read it, and I dread reading it. <laughs> I know. I've had a track record with horrifying things I've written coming true, so I'm worried. Well, I mean, yeah, super sad true love story was really, a, you call it a dystopia. To me, it's the reality of today, which is, yeah. you know, people glued to their gadgets. I, yeah. I can't remember what they were called in the book. The apparats. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, look, thank you, Gary, for coming by. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Ben Kellerman, Freddie Joyner, and Andrew D'Antonio. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes. And if you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob Wancox. Thanks for tuning in and adios.